0: Hey there, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Samira Storks. This is a podcast about the dreamers out there and their stories of entrepreneurship. So if you're curious, creative, and you're ready to make an impact on this world, then this is for you. Welcome to Episode 31 with me, your host, Samira Sohail. Today I was joined by a Turkish startup founder, Tugche Bullet. Tugche founded Street a company where market research meets technology. It powers consumer insights for brands using a network of real people on the ground in over 80 countries. In this episode, we hear Tugshay's story, discuss the rising need for a consumer voice when it comes to innovation, understand how artificial intelligence and big data play into her company, and why putting people back in control of their personal data is a must. Enjoy. Hi Tugshay, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. Thanks Samira. So in a line, can you tell us what Street Bees is? Absolutely. Street
1: Bees is a global intelligence platform. What we do is we tap into real
0: life moments of real people in real time. And it'd be great to start with your background and the, the sequence of events that led to this idea. In particular, you spent some of your academic studies in the developing world and also had some professional experience in management consultancy. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we were actually in a quite a lucky place to be able to have the
1: perspective on both sides of knowing the quality of academic research where you just can't compromise. Everything has to be 100% accurate and you know you can repeat the same thing multiple times to be able to trust it. And when I came to business world, started as a strategy consultant, what you realize quite quickly is that it's a whole different quality standard and you are making actually much bigger decisions with a lot more at stake with data that is nowhere as good And that was quite interesting. So I spent before, during my PhD years, working in India on microfinance. I was on the ground working very closely with people, but we were still reaching a very high volume of data and information that's collected on the ground. Years later, when I was working as a strategy consultant, um, one of our clients who manufactures tea came to us and said, okay, we want to go to these 20 new markets And this included India, it also included Nigeria, Russia, Azerbaijan, a lot of, you know, classically hard-to-reach markets. And we said, okay, we can help you with that, but we first need to see how people make tea. Because if you take this tea bag that is produced for instant tea making, as we do it in England... And then take the same thing in India and boil it with milk for 30 minutes, it's not going to taste good, right? (laughs) And that's the reason why people are actually not going to use it. So we need to understand that. So I went to one of our traditional market research suppliers that we always work with as as a consultant. We told them that, guys, we need to get videos of people making tea from these 20 countries. But I don't want, like, one single observation. We want hundreds of them so we can quantify the data. And they came back to me weeks later saying, it's going to take about 14 weeks to collect this data. They can't do all to any markets. They can't access places like Azerbaijan. And also, I can't have videos. They said, we can ask questions, and we can get like, you know, multiple choice answers, but we can't collect videos. And to me, that was like, OK, that doesn't make sense. There are people in India right now, as we speak, who are making tea. <laughs> And surely there should be a way for us to be able to tap into those life moments, observe it, rather than asking them to remember how they were making tea, to actually observe how they make tea, right? And that's how the Stripiz idea came to existence, basically. That was the catalyst moment. I said, there are people who want this data There are people who can provide this data and no one is making the market. So Street Bees emerged to be able to make that market.
0: Excellent. And so you have this idea and you're in these early days. You're not actually from a technical background. So talk to us about those first kind of few months where... You had to get a co-founder on board and also get your first prototype up and running. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. That question comes up a lot,
1: but I don't actually think it's, it's very relevant at the early stage because a business by nature is a very complex beast. Not one single person can cover all aspects of it. So you will have some of the skills and you won't have the others. And I think, is is the person technical or not, becomes quite irrelevant in the end. So what we did is that we had the access to clients, we had relationships, we also understood the market quite well, and we basically just built the prototypes using what is available off the shelf. Um, and then once the concept started proving itself and there was more demand in the market, then obviously you start bringing in people to the team as Quite early members as founding members who can code, but no one single person would claim that they can, you know, run the operations, build the architecture, do the sales. Like at any point when you are building a business, you are going to need support.
0: And so let's talk about the industry itself. So how I think will surprise a lot of people, but how big is the market size itself of the research?
1: Yeah, of course. So I mean, it is it is huge. It's forty five billion dollar market as it is today, and that's primarily mega large companies like, you know, someone like Nestle or Unilever, Pepsi, Vodafone are all spending hundreds of millions per year on market research. What what we offer though goes beyond that market size because we are not simply offering traditional market research solutions, we are also building intelligent solutions that was never possible before. So you are probably adding another 20 billion or so when you start including stuff that is now possible that never was possible before.
0: Excellent. And specifically with Street Bees today, um, so how many clients do you work for? How many insights have you captured? How many bees do you have on the ground uh, doing these observations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we have over a million active bees. So these are in 87 countries. And they are basically active means that we can tap into their life moments at any time. So they are engaged with our platform on an ongoing basis. That number changes literally every day, so it's hard to keep track of it. But one of the things that we've been observing is that once we reach a certain size in a country, then it becomes a massive word of mouth and people start talking about it and it starts spreading. Um,
0: In terms of the client side, we have over 100 clients. There are two schools of thought when it comes to consumer insights helping inform innovation of new products and services. So the quote always bounded around by Henry Ford is, If I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Um, Why why do you think companies are taking more of an active interest in consumer behavior and opinions today?
1: I mean, it's it's a great question. And I think there are different ways of innovation, right? So you can improve things and you can actually offer people better and better solutions or faster horses. But also, obviously, you can invent new things which may not necessarily be available to people already within their cognitive map, right? That doesn't mean that you can't establish the needs that lead to that. So what jumped us from faster horses to a car wasn't just that someone sitting around and thinking, oh, I wish I just had a car. They probably already observed the fact that the problem we are solving here is that people need to go from A to B faster, right? You don't need to ask people, do you want faster horses or do you want something completely new? But you do need to establish what is the problem they are trying to solve. And that's exactly what market research does. So what happened is that when we brought this solution to the market, when we were having a conversation with one of the largest consumer companies in the world, what they told us that 80% of growth in food and beverage come from outside top four companies. Now, that's dangerous, right? So you are are talking about multi-billion dollar businesses with all the intelligence and insights and all the information they have, and we are saying that they can't grow as fast as these teeny tiny companies popping up around the world. Why? Well, because they are closer to the consumer. They are there. They are there on the ground. They have their ears and eyes on the ground, watching and observing. What is it that's bothering people? What problem needs to be solved? So obviously, the bigger players take notice. And one thing that we are now helping all those companies is to be as nimble and as you know uh, sensitive and responsive to the needs. You don't need to ask people what they want, but they do know what they need.
0: And you mentioned uh, food and beverage clients. Can you take us through... A typical engagement or project you did recently? I suppose we talk a lot about food and beverages it's still
1: the world's largest industry right we all need to eat basically which means all these food and beverage companies are quite sophisticated in the way they measure insights and intelligence um, one of the most exciting projects we have recently done was about predicting based on who you are what you are likely to eat and that's a very important question for any company, right because if they are trying to build the right products for you or they want to you know advertise things in a language that's going to be um, appealing for people, they need to know who you are and what you are likely to buy. Traditionally, this has been done with um, either regression models like it might be linear or it might be multivariate, but in the end of the day it's like you know manual regression models. And that would usually depend on a lot of assumptions. So in a recent study, what we did is we didn't ask people what they think they eat. We instead asked them, show me what you eat. So rather than asking, do you like cooking? And they say, yeah, I love cooking. And then you give them a score that then you feed into a model. We actually asked them, just take a photo of what you're eating for a whole week And then we use these photos with image recognition to turn into unstructured data and then use machine learning to be able to predict from that behavior how they are likely to shape their uh, menu in the coming days, right? So you then start clustering people into a universe of similar behavior patterns. And then once you are able to find the density in a certain group, we can then predict what they are likely to do in the future. But also we know what the profile of those people look like. So we can look into, okay, those guys from their eating behavior perspective look quite similar. And we also know that they are going to eat pizza two times a week, right, in these circumstances. And then on a Saturday, they are very likely to have this drink, etc. And then you can start personalizing commercial, um, you know, approaches, product innovation. And we ended up improving for this company the prediction power from 23%, which is worse than chance, by the way. Mm. <laughs> if you just toss a coin, you get a better chance of predicting, all the way to 86%. Wow. So now, with our new modeling, they can predict what a particular group of people are likely to eat under which uh, scenario with 86% confidence, which is quite exciting, obviously. And that's
0: amazing, because you, uh, you were essentially doing unsupervised learning. Yeah, absolutely. The model To find the, the correlation variance, from what I understand. That's right. With inputs only being demographic data, and whatever... The mobile phone was picking up, so location. So, could could you even go as far to to start? Like, did, they, did you know the weather on that Monday? So, say, on a rainy day, people would eat more heavy food or anything like that?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So you introduce more and more dimensions. Yeah. So what you are doing here is that, in terms of the models we use for the machine learning, the first thing what we are doing is reducing dimensions. So it's like you just said, at any particular moment, we are carrying 15 dimensions about that meal. Previously, you were asking someone, what did you eat a week ago? Obviously, they can't report um, with you know, accuracy because they forget. But beyond that, just knowing what you ate is not that helpful. Whereas when we actually log that moment, the information we are getting is much richer. We know the day of the week, time of the day. Right? We also know who you are with at that very particular moment. It's all anonymous, by the way. We don't really mind who you are. That's irrelevant for the discussion. But we know all the like nameless data about it. So, do you also have, you know, ketchup on your table, for example? So, just like that, within every single log, we are capturing 15 dimensions about that particular meal. Now, if the human brain could observe a 15 dimensional universe, you would see these responses, these logs clustering naturally up in the universe. They're going to be like little spots hanging out there, right? The problem is we can't see that because our brains are not built in a way that we can see a 15-dimensional universe, right? So what machine learning does simply is visualize that into a two-dimensional uh, matrix so that we can actually see it without losing the granularity in the information so that we can see the natural clusters happening. And then we use HDB scan to be able to understand the density. So if you are in a, like, a judgment call point, do you belong to the cluster A or cluster B, then rather than completely making a judgment call in terms of your behavior, scientifically, we can see to which density you are actually closer to so that you belong to that group in the end. I mean, it's quite exciting for someone like me coming from an academic background, finally seeing that we don't have to make assumptions or arbitrary judgments about people's segmentation or like consumption behavior, but actually we can apply science to it.
0: Yeah, and thank you uh, for that explanation of as well. Of um, course. So given how in demand I'd say artificial intelligence and machine learning skills are at the moment, what's your advice to people out there recruiting best in class talent? And you're still quite an early stage startup, well funded, but um, and keeping those salaries at a reasonable level. I think the last post I saw was something like average salaries for two hundred to three hundred K dollars uh for machine learning engineers.
1: Yeah, that's very true. I mean In my experience, what actually ever closes the deal with talent in general, definitely for engineering, is never the salary. It really never is. I mean, you have to match the market rate, for sure, and people should be paid fairly for their contribution. But beyond that, when you are choosing between different jobs, I haven't come across many cases where someone would make that decision on the basis of salary. What do they care about is, am I learning? Right Is this an interesting challenge and i'm and do I have the opportunity and environment to keep learning and secondly, increasingly it's about the mission of the business and I think actually as startups we are a lot luckier about that, right because if you are a very large scale like let's say hardware business and you know it it, it is a just um I don't want to say like profit-motivated uh, business, but you know you don't have a bigger mission than that. It's quite difficult to convince top top talent to come. What startups generally have is you believe in something passionately that you are bringing as a new solution to the market, and so much easier actually to attract good talent to come around that mission. And if you then create an environment for them to keep learning and to keep developing themselves, that's probably what
0: uh, actually closes the deal in the end. Excellent. And speaking of, um, of mission uh, and, uh, and Street Bees really, it's reach, you mentioned 1 million uh, at grassroots level, at street level, um, and you can access more rural areas. Uh, so you mentioned those 20 countries at the beginning and you mentioned 87 countries you have footprint in. How do you reach those people without massive... Outreach, in person, uh, and marketing campaigns.
1: Yes, I think that's kind of what really built the business from from ground up. Um, because when you start, obviously, you don't have the budgets that many like you know large businesses would have. What we saw is that it's very important for people to own the mission with you from day one as the users of the concept, right? And that's, I think, what was very critical to our success very early on, bees on street bees. And that's very important for them to feel that from from the very beginning. What made street bees is all those people around the world who are willing to who are volunteering their insights and information to create a greater good when it's all put together. And without their trust and belief, we wouldn't be able to build that. So that's what we call a grassroots brand that requires transparency. So people always knew from from day one what we are going to do with that data. Right, that we are going to commercialize this information. It's always going to be anonymous. Your name will never be mentioned on anything. At any point that you don't want to share anymore, you can completely pull out and we can you know, get rid of all the information you provided so far. So we put our users at the very center of the business concept. They have full control. They have full transparency over what they get. And most importantly, they get a fair pay for their contribution. We are not just simply taking the data and like running with it. No, your data, your information is valuable, and we are going to share part of that value back with you. Right? That's how we managed to create a grassroots community around Street Bees in 87 countries, so that when we enter a market, a new city, for example, people start talking about Street Bees, they are excited about the concept, They're excited about the fact that someone really values their insights and their information. They get paid for it. They start talking about it. So our acquisition costs always have been very low um, because people love the brand. People love the concept. They like engaging with the app. And once they see that they get paid for their contribution,
0: they start spreading the word about that. Two questions off the back of that. But firstly, how do you typically price so what might be the average revenue for a person keeping a food blog or photos or videos of their food for all week?
1: I think the first important thing that that's not a that's not a revenue for them. This is something that you do for you know, because you want to engage and in return someone values your time and compensates for that by by no means that's something you would do as a job or like, you know, actually to earn money. It won't it wouldn't be enough anyway for that. Um but we measure the time you are going to spend and then we look at the purchasing power parity for the country and then we would always aim to be higher than whatever a living wage is in that country per minute. Okay. Our studies would take, let's say, five minutes, ten minutes, so we make our calculation to make sure that we would be above that rate so that you are fairly compensated for your
0: time. That's fair. So it's not necessarily... Looking at a, a kind of passive income stream?
1: Uh, Absolutely not. Actually, we would block that uh, okay. if someone tries mm-hmm. to do like super a user. passive income. Yeah. We can't have super users because the whole idea here is real people, real life moments. From also our clients' perspective, they want to get fresh insights. If someone is becoming a, like, almost like a professional insights sharer, that doesn't work, right? Because that would bias the research. So we would always have limits
0: on how much people can share on what particular topic. So one of the great things about the technology is the ability to turn insights so quickly because you have such great access to people through mobile or through connectivity, Can you talk about some of the work you're doing around checking the pulse and the voice of people?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's obviously one of the most exciting things about developing a product that touches lives of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world, right? And we give them a tool with which they can voice what they think. And we can become the publication almost arm for them to be able to show what the world about a particular topic. A very good example of that was during a major political event that was happening in Turkey about a, more than a year ago. And there was a, a coup attempt that was taking place. And as the event was unfolding, we launched a study on the ground which reached more than 2,500 Turkish citizens um, within a matter of like less than 24 hours where we asked them what they think who was behind the coup attempt? Were they supporting it? Were they supporting the government? And that was super interesting because there were a lot of assumptions and theories in the media with no data. And people were basically relying on a lot of propaganda as well, arguing this is what Turkish people think, this is what they, mm, uh, what, what they support. And our question was, really? How do you know because we haven't seen any data yet, right? And then we published that data. We had the chance of speaking to Financial Times who picked up the data and published it. And what they then they showed is actually 33% of people in Turkey, which is from a nationally representative sampling, support this versus you know 86% of the population think that. What that does is it brings, you know, what we call data journalism to the picture. And in a world where we are discussing more and more fake news, or, you know, very opinionated pieces of information that goes to media, this allows us in an objective and factual base to
0: report what the public thinks. Yeah. And like you said, increasingly important in today's news uh, information age, I would say.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Street focus always will be intelligence and information. We are not a broadcasting or publication company, and that will never change. We will always uh, stay true to our DNA as an intelligence company. But if we can facilitate, you know, publication businesses and, you know, broadcasting companies by providing them those public opinions, obviously, it's, you know, put Street as a platform in the right
0: place. Cool. And so um, you also recently did a survey with um, BGF, Business Growth Funds, on what it's like to be a founder. And so some of the reasons that came out uh, in the survey were um, 22% said they wanted to solve a problem in the market, 21% they liked the fact that they were their own boss, and 9% actually said there was, there was a desire to make a lot of money. Um, Stress and exhaustion were some of the other themes that came through on the survey. Which of these, if any, resonate with you in particular? It's a good question. I think
1: um, there's, as you know yourself, like there's so many ups and downs of um, being an entrepreneur and the um, challenge is so huge that your commitment needs to be very deep. Now, if someone finds that level of commitment from, um, you know, making what is it, desire to make lots of money, fantastic. But I doubt that happens very often. So, and if you are in it to make a lot of money, I think some of the challenges you are gonna face can easily wear you out, and you know, you would probably quit at some point. I think you would need a stronger commitment and devotion. Um, than that. A lot of very successful entrepreneurs I observe around me is basically just can't live otherwise. Like you just have to do it, right? There is no other way of existence basically. And and that's probably a bit similar to the first one that uh, we picked up in that research solving a problem in the market but what I would say is I would go even beyond that that you just can't live without solving that problem it just has to happen and if you have that
0: level of conviction then all the challenges become a bit more manageable I want to move on to talking about your experience being a female founder and um, there was recently a story about which see which was a an art company which actually made up a third male co-founder when they came to fundraising because uh, they felt they would be more successful. Um, how has your experience as a female founder been uh, uh, whilst you were fundraising?
1: I think there are two answers to that. I'll, I will answer your question, but I think there is also a wider context here. And someone, one of my advisors, very early on on the business, had something had, had said something to me that I thought was actually, respectively, quite wise. You make things a problem for yourself in your own mind and if you don't they can't become a problem it really is all in your mind at the end of the day so a lot of things that you know are you technical or not technical are you female or male that kind of stuff is if you don't allow it to become an issue it can't become an issue it's that simple in my experience in London I always worked with people who I would call are gender neutral when they look at you they see a founder full stop they don't see a gender right? It doesn't matter at all. And those people exist in any market. So you just need to work with people who are thinking like that. And they are in it because, you know, they're excited about the idea. They're excited about the entrepreneurial story. So all the people we currently have around the table in our boards, in our, you know, investor community, I don't think they remember my gender as the first thing when they think of me. Okay. In terms of the, you know, those guys, like, what, why they felt the need, I think it's important not to trap yourself, I would say, into that mindset. You will meet people in your life who have, you know, some uh, perspective on, like, what gender should do with job. Just avoid them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Get it <a> right. <price. laughs> Can you tell us a funny, fail story of who you've stalked and how that has gone in the three years' <laughs> journey?
1: Tell me more about what you mean by who you stock, like
0: so, just to, for business or yeah, for investment? There, or it, Yeah, is there a client that you really wanted? Is there, you know, a, a, a publication or a journal that you really want to be, <laughs> be cited in? Is there an investor or uh, an angel that you really wanted on the early ticket?
1: Yeah, no, it's really funny. So I think I have the classic entrepreneurial memory that I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Those kind of like failed stories. To me, it was all like win, 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 basically. Um, But jokes aside, I think nothing major that really comes to my mind because I think we just don't let it go. Like once we really decide something is very important, we're just not going to stop until it happens. Obviously, there have been investor meetings where, you know, we were like having a conversation and then at some point you realize that it's not going to go anywhere and then you, you kill the conversation, But I can't really think of anything that's particularly like we made so much effort and it didn't happen in the end. Fair enough. Um,
0: And we spoke a little bit earlier about the roller coaster of, of the journey of being a founder. Can you actually take us to your lowest point during the Street Bees journey?
1: Very good question. So the lowest point, it is quite a roller coaster, right? So there are a lot of lows and there are a lot of highs and they can sometimes come within the same day. Um, I think the earlier stages were a lot harder because once you have such a strong team around you, even as the, you know, founder, you might having a hard day, team picks you up. And that makes a huge difference. Like then you start realizing and remembering what a great thing we've built and then you can pick yourself. Whereas in the earlier days, you don't have that. You are alone and if you have a very small team or if you are literally like by yourself, then it's quite hard sometimes to keep the morale high. I do remember a long time ago in the probably first couple of months when we built a business that we were very cash constrained. And I actually had to move flats to be able to move to a place where like rent is not going to become a major issue. And I remember I was then living with a friend. And I was working till really late, preparing a proposal for the like, next morning. So I left the office at like 4 a.m. or something like that. And I go back to the flat, super tired. It's somewhere that I just moved in, like a new flat. Then I realize I don't have the keys. <laughs> it's raining outside. It's 4 a.m. in the morning. I don't want to wake up my flatmate at the time. And I literally just sat down there for 15 minutes thinking, what happened to my life? <laughs> And how did all this happen, like, from where I was just a year ago, right? And I do remember that feeling quite well, that, like, how down you can feel all of a sudden because there's nothing to hold on to. And that's why it becomes quite important to have the right co-founder, to have, you know, a support network of friends that you can call up at 4 a.m. in the morning and just, like, knock on their door to stay over, you know? And that becomes quite important as you go through the journey that do you have that support network around you.
0: So a series of quick fire questions. Don't think too much. Um, what tea do you drink? Ooh, um, just English breakfast tea.: What uh,
1: was the last book you read? Great book, actually. It was called Four Obsessions of, um, What was it called? Four Obsessions of Extraordinary Executives." I think it was a pretty exciting book. Okay. What, were there four in particular? There were four, but that would be a spoiler okay. because they don't share the four until okay. the end of the work. Five. So I don't want to spoil the story. Thank you,
0: Thank you for that. <laughs> what music are you listening to at the moment?
1: So I'm actually I pick up anything. Um, I quite like jazz in general, but to be honest, like I love listening to random stuff, so I'm a big like radio listener and then whatever like you know comes up in the radio, that kind of surprise factor makes me happy. Good.
0: and um, what childhood fictional character do you remind yourself
1: of? That is hilarious. That when you said that, the first character that jumped to my mind unconsciously was Kesper.
0: <laughs> I don't know why. A friendly ghost? Friendly just, ghost, maybe. with their marketing at the
1: moment. Uh, yeah, I, know, I don't know. Like, what, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know what they jumped, but yeah, that was one of our favorite char- one of my favorite characters from childhoods.
0: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's the first one of that we've had on. Um and then what was the last thing that inspired you? Oh, another founder,
1: um, I would say that um, uh, you know, I had the chance to personally meet Tavit, um, founder of uh, Transferwise, who's he been helping us massively during our uh you know most recent journey. And one of the things that really inspired me is the relentless determination, you know, you build a business, which is already invert, you know, quite a lot, which is already functioning um, to help millions of people. And you can still see the day one enthusiasm and determination. I think that's very inspiring.
0: Okay. And lastly, what are your tuxetism? So what parting advice would you give to anyone out there who wants to embark on their own startup?
1: It's a good question. I I always thought that my number one, you know, magical skill is that I do really believe there's no such thing as failing. There's just no such thing until you decide to quit. Everything is in your control at the end. So number one advice I would give to people is that you set the terms. Things don't happen to you right? You decide where you are going, you follow that route and you get there. You will definitely get there as long as you want to get there and no one and nothing can stop you.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for those parting words and thanks very much for being on the show. Not a problem at all. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for listening. If you learned something from this episode, please do share it with three others that you think will enjoy it. And do reach out on at Samira Storks on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. This season, I have a new wave of AI and blockchain founders coming on. If there are any other topics you want me to cover, do shoot me a line too. And sign up to my tech and startup newsletter on samirastorks.com. Bye.